We're going to, to get into the Word in a very familiar passage today. Turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. The title of the message is The Father Heart of God. The Father Heart of God. And this message is going to be like an echo. Because uh, Tellus, my son, preached on February 26th the exact same passage with the exact same uh, title of the message. But I'm going to take it from a different slant today and allow it to be a double blessing to you. We're going to look at John chapter 3, verse 16. Will you please stand as we read the Word of God? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Lord, help us as we study your word, and help us to live, look, and love more like you today than we did yesterday. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Three things in this passage about which I'd like to speak. One, that, that God loved the world. Two, that God gave, and three, God sent. It doesn't make any sense that God loves the world. Only a father can love the, un the unlovable son. Brothers don't even like brothers who are unlovable. Surely friends, at least maybe ex-friends, don't like people who are unlovable. But it takes... In fact, I don't have a testimony of what I'm about to share. I have no idea that this has ever happened. It takes an unusual set of circumstances for a father in the earth to no longer love his son. That God loved the world when the world was completely opposite of everything he desired only shows his father's heart. The world was going in the wrong way. The world was not doing his will. People were hurting one another. Everything that he had designed had been broken and broken by people. There was nothing in this world that looked like what he thought about when he thought about creating everything he did. The world was a mess. And instead of <laughs> taking the canvas upon which he painted, not liking what came out, throwing it away, he said, I'm going to figure out how to fix it. This passage comes on the heels of a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was a religious leader in Jerusalem. Jesus happened to be in Jerusalem at the time. And Jesus, Jesus' star, his influence was rising in the nation of Israel. Everybody was beginning to talk about him. John the Baptist had paved the way for his ministry and it made sure that everybody realized this was the guy you need to follow, not me. And John the Baptist's ministry was the largest that we have on record for the last 400 years in all of Israel. Everybody thought he was so amazing that they kept asking him, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? And he said, no, no, not me. But there's one coming after me whose sandals I am not even able to untie. Now, John's ministry was the most prominent in, again, 400 years, the last 400 years. He was that big, that influential. And he preached out in the wilderness. He didn't preach in Jerusalem. 
where there were crowds. And people came out to the wilderness to hear him. Now, when we, th- when we think about wilderness, I don't know what you think about, but generally speaking, it's something romantic from the National Geographic. Yeah. <laughs> That's not this. This is like desert. There are tumbleweeds flowing all over the place. It's hot. It's sticky. It's dusty. You all need air conditioning to come and hear me. If I told you we were going to meet out in some field someplace on Sunday morning, you'd say, why? <laughs> Jerusalem had places to be. You could, you could gather someplace in the temple. If you've been to Jerusalem, the, the, the temple is not a little place. It used to be, but it's not a little place. It had a large area where people could gather in here, outside. John the Baptist said, no, 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 I'm going to go out here. And troves, crowds of people would come to hear him. That's how influential he was. And when he says, I'm not even able to un- untie his sandals, what he's saying is this. The servant in the house, any house that was large enough, had, had servants at different levels. The lowest servant was responsible to make sure that the persons who came in the home got their feet washed because there was no pavement and everybody wore, wore open-toed shoes. There were no closed-toed shoes. And so their feet were filthy because they walked on, in dirty areas. And so the, the, the lowest servant was responsible when somebody came into the house to make sure people's sandals were untied and their feet were washed. John said, I'm not even able to do that for him. You think I'm great. He's so much greater than me. John paved the way so that when Jesus actually showed up, Everybody said, that's who John has been talking about. And he pointed to him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John was so humble that I'm convinced. I, I might be alone in this, but I'm not mad about it. I'm convinced that John is just about the greatest minister who has ever been other than Christ. Not because he was a great preacher, though he was. Not because he stood up to, to sin and, and corruption wherever it was, but he was. But because... Every bit of his ministry was about giving stuff away. He knew he wasn't the guy. And he would tell people regularly, he's the one you need to follow, not me. I must, in, I must decrease while he increases. And when Jesus came, he baptized him. Jesus began to walk off into his ministry. And then Philip and Andrew followed him. Philip and Andrew were John's staff. They were his workers. And John didn't say, hey, 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 wait, 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 come back. He gave his staff away. This man, all he was, was a road paver for Jesus. Amazing. So that when Jesus came, he didn't have to break ground. He had a platform upon which to stand. His ministry grew quickly, quickly. I say all of that because here we are in John chapter 3 when his ministry is just starting, but his prominence is already very high, all because John the Baptist had paved the way. Nicodemus comes to him as a ruler of the Jews. And we don't know exactly why Nicodemus came. We don't. But I I, I have a feeling I understand why it came from from the way the conversation went. It wasn't near as pleasant as you think it ought to be, if somebody was actually searching to find out who Jesus was. Nicodemus shows up, and he says, Good teacher, we know that nobody can do the things that you can do unless God is with them. Platitudes, maybe flattery. Jesus says, 
By the way, Nick, you need to be born again. Not a thank you. Not a, I appreciate your compliment, your deference. Jesus just starts right in with what Nick needs to do rather than even answering or responding to his initial comments. That shows you that there's some degree of confrontation here that Jesus understands why Nick is there, even though Nick hasn't really explained to him why he's there. My sense is that because Jesus responded the way he did, that Nicodemus had some ulterior motives. It wasn't just he was searching for Christ, trying to figure out how to find him. He, he, he was probably sent on behalf of the Jewish leaders to see, would you like to join us? We got a spot for you. You'd be a really good Pharisee. Minimally get his influence on the side if he wasn't going to join. Because Jesus comes very confrontively. And whenever Jesus comes confrontively, he's reading the hearts of people to whom he's speaking. He can be really compassionate to some folks who go out of order. The woman who touched him that shouldn't have, the hem of his garment, she was unclean. She was not even supposed to be in the crowd. He said, who touched me? And the disciples said, everybody's around you. They're all touching you. He said, no, no, somebody touched me. Virtue left me. He looked at the woman and said, go. Your faith has made you well. There was a sincere opportunity for him to correct her as a result of her being out of order. He said, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh-uh, not today, baby. You're good. So Jesus responds according to the heart. Here, he's responding to, I think, to Nick's heart. You got to be born again. And then Nick responds. Now, this is a man who is a learned man. He's not a novice. If you will, he's got a PhD in theology. So this is how he responds to Jesus when Jesus says, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. He says, well, how can a man enter a second time into his mama's belly? Now, that's not the way you respond. <laughs> if you're really trying to be kind and, and, and want to learn, he's actually, he's actually being reconfrontive. He's rebutting. And Jesus says, well, I want you to know you can't. Really even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. What's born of flesh, what's born of spirit is spirit. What's born of flesh is flesh. I tell you, you have to be born again. And Jesus goes through all the things about what he was to do and what Nick needed to do. And then we get here. And we see probably that Nick's heart is beginning to soften because Jesus reveals some things to him that he hasn't revealed to anybody else. Now, he hasn't revealed this person, but he has revealed the purpose for which the person he's talking about came. It's him, but he's doing something really special for Nicodemus. And we know this, that Nicodemus' journey was that which allowed him to follow Christ in the end and that he was a part of the group of people that would help bury Jesus. Along with Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus was one of the people that was really kind of defending him. In, the, in his latter days in Jerusalem as he was going to be crucified. So we know that Nicodemus changed, but the beginning of the conversation and the end of the conversation are very different, which meant that Nicodemus's heart was probably moving toward who Jesus was. But he didn't know how to navigate from the environment in which he found himself. He was stuck in the religious mores and, and the, the muck and the mire and the system that he was in and he did not know how in the world to get out of it. But he liked what he was beginning to hear from Jesus. And here, Jesus now is beginning to educate him. And 
in the education process, Jesus cares because this is a long, this is John chapter 1 through John chapter, uh, John chapter, excuse me, John chapter 3, verse 1, all the way through somewhere around uh, 19 or 20. That's a lot of verses to be having a conversation with somebody if you don't care about them and if you think they aren't interested in what you got to say. So Nicodemus' interest is growing. And he's beginning to educate him, Jesus is, about what the purpose of the Son coming is. And how Father God thinks about the world. Now this part is really huge. The Jewish people thought that God was interested in the part of the world that was Jewish. The rest of the world he wasn't interested in. Because all they did was only take their history from Abraham. From Abraham, God said, I'm going to give you this land, Abe. And it's going to be for your descendants and all of your descendants after them. And this land is going to be a forever inheritance for them. And I'm going to bless them. And I'm going to keep them. And I'm going to make sure that they, they represent my will in the earth. Everybody else, they're going to be probably your enemies. And so you might have to fight them. But you, I really like. Now, that did not mean that God wasn't interested in the rest. It meant that God wanted to use Abraham and his descendants to be the people through whom he brought his will for everybody else. But it did not mean that, that Israel was his only. It just meant they were his first Do you know you are not his only? You're not an only child. Sometimes you act like it. You don't want to hang out with your brothers and sisters very much. You don't want to identify with them very much. You just want to have a relationship with Father God. And all those other people that have dysfunction, you don't have time for them because your life is too busy and you need to stay in mental health. You've got to practice self-care. And there are too many people around you that are sick in their brain. You don't want to deal with them. Too much dysfunction. And so you justify your position of being alone. You know you're not an only child, but you act like it sometimes. Nicodemus, God was not just interested in Abraham. God was interested in Adam. He made the promise to Adam that he was going to bring a child through his wife Eve that would crush the serpent's head, even though in doing so his heel would be bruised. That was to Adam, not to Abraham. And he used Abraham as the man through whom he would bring his will and bring his Messiah so his Messiah could touch the world because God loved the world, not just the Jews. This was a bit. Now, I know you know that to be true because you've been in church for a little bit. But to, to Nicodemus, you mean God loves Rome? Oh, you can't be serious. He loves Pontius Pilate. Uh-uh. He loves Tiberius, who was, who was the king or the Romans, Romans at the time, Caesar. No, that dude doesn't like us. He beats us up. He taxes us inordinately. No. God can't love them. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God's love is unmeasurable. It's unmeasurable. It is so deep there is no plum that can find its bottom. 
It is so wide there is no tape measure nor laser that can reach its expanse. It is so high that it's higher than the heavens. That's how much God loves. Paul says it like this. What can separate us from the love of God? Can danger, can sword, persecution, famine, war, nothing can separate us from his love. I want you to know how much God is committed to you. I know you have issues. You know you have issues. But those issues do not stop him from loving you. They don't stop him from pursuing you. There's nothing you have done, are doing, or will do that will stop him from loving you. Why? Because he proved how much he loved you by giving his son. Point two. God loved the world that he gave. He didn't just express sentiment. It wasn't just compassion. He opened up his relational wallet, if you will, and gave the most valuable thing in the universe, his son, for your benefit. Now, I don't want to make this so individual that somehow we miss out on the corporate. America seems to want to take passages and apply them so much to themselves that they forget about the assembly. And, and even though it says, for God so loved the world, we kind of apply it to, God so loved me that he gave his son. I'm super special. And it doesn't mean you're not by me not emphasizing you. What it does mean that, the, that you aren't an only. He didn't love you any less. He just loved everybody else the same. He gave his son. I've got five boys. I love it. Lots of testosterone in my house. <laughs> Lots of stuff got broken when they were young. And I was kind of proud it got broken. One day I came home in my basement and there was an imprint of one of my boys in my drywall. Part of me said no. Part of me said yes. <laughs> they were playing so hard they threw one another into the wall. <laughs> I'd wrestle them all the time. See how strong they were. I'd, I'd, I'd make them hit me in my stomach. To let them know what strength felt like. <laughs> kind of a backhanded compliment, isn't it? Right to myself. <laughs> Physical things were a part of our makeup. Everything I did, I just loved having men in my house. And that didn't mean, my two girls didn't mean a lot to me. I loved being daddy to my estrogen-filled daughters. <laughs> loved it, loved cuddling with them, talking to them, dancing with them in church. I loved it. But playing basketball and football wrestling like wow <laughs> I don't think I would give one for any of y'all I love you but I don't think I'd give one for any of you 
selfish I am. That's how much I love them. But God so loved the world that he gave for whoever. For whoever. I love this man right here. But I don't think I give grant for him. I'm just saying. I'm, just, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. I'm trying to amplify a point. Do you understand what I'm saying? It would take a lot for you to say, Son, I want you to die for him now. So much would it take a, a lifetime of tears. And God gave his son for who, not friends, not dear acquaintances, not people he had relationship with, for whoever. I don't even get that. He gave him for whoever like me who was going the wrong direction. This is how much he proved how he loved. That it didn't matter what you did or who you were. He loved you like that and there is no greater love that he had for his son than that which he had for his son. And he decided, go for them. If I anthropomorphically, which means to take the attributes of humanity and apply them to God, if I anthropomorphically had a, had, had, a, had a conversation, looked at a conversation between God and the Son, it would go something like this. The Father says to the Son, you got to go. He said, what for? <laughs> These people don't like you. They definitely don't like me. What for? Because I love them. Why? Why? They haven't done you right ever. Yeah, they're not going to do you right either. They're going to beat you. They won't listen to you. They won't honor you. They're going to put you on a, on a wooden stake with nails for you to hang. Dishonor is going to be your robe. And you're going to have to take it without saying a word and not using your power to deliver yourself. Okay. That conversation didn't happen. But I imagine at some point, some sentiments had to go through Christ's mind when he was in Gethsemane. Sweating great drops of blood. Saying, God, really? Really? For these people? I know I already decided. I got it. I, I, I'm, I'm, but if there's some other if there's some other way, please let this cup pass. Because this is like so and it's not just about the physical pain through which I'm going to go. I realize I'm taking on all of their sin and their shame and their punishment. Everything that they deserve, I'm going to get. And, 
That stuff has kept them from you. Now it's going to keep me from you. I don't even know what it means to be separate from you, Daddy. I don't, I don't even know. And this is why he says on the cross in his humanity, God, God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? His humanity crying out, realizing what it means to take on the pain and the sin and the consequence of every person who has been, is, and will be. Jesus suffered more than any man in history. It's not that others weren't crucified. It's that nobody had ever been worthy of taking the sin of the world on themselves. He was the only one that was because he lived sinless and he did not have to die for his own, which, which allowed him, qualified him to die for us. The kind of love that the Father had and the kind of love that the Son had is unimaginably great. I'm amplifying this for you with as much detail as I possibly can because I want you to know how much he is for you. If the enemy ever comes and says he really doesn't care, oh, just look back to the cross. He gave his son to create an exit for your judgment. You don't have to go through that door. That whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. I don't know exactly, I know what it means theologically, but in the context of what he's saying with Nicodemus, I don't know what perish means. I, I know it in the Greek, but I don't know what, what Nicodemus heard when he heard perish. Anybody who believes, just believes, not does, I would think that there would be something in there that would say, okay, if they went to synagogue every Saturday and they read their Torah and they, they went to all the feasts and they did what was required in the law and they obeyed God, then they would escape perishing. But he says, I know they're so messed up, there's no way they can do that. So he's lowering the bar. He's lowering the bar and said, if you just believe, if you just believe, <laughs> he raised the bar on his love and his accountability so high, and he lowered the bar for us so low. If you just believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. Who is this God that allows us to come into relationship with him without any obedience? This is how much he loves us because he knew we couldn't do it on our own. This is how much the Father heart of God cares about you. gave an exit from perishing and not just life. Listen, it'd be nice if I didn't just perish. That'd be great. Not to suffer for my sin, that'd be cool. That'd be enough. No judgment, give me a pardon. Judge, please. Don't have to go to jail. Wonderful. But we got a pardon 
and then set for life. We got set for life, eternity. What kind of judge does that? He didn't just release us from our consequences. He said, let me give you a gift. Life eternal with me. This is how much God loves you. He gives you what you don't deserve. Mercy, unplumbable. And lastly, he sent. <laughs> Giving and sending are in the same package, but they're distinguishable. You can't separate them, though. He gave his son, but he sent him. And so, son, when you go, I want you to understand that your responsibility is this, to save and not judge. Do you know that had to be running through his brain all the time? When, when the Pharisees would come and, and they'd bring this woman who was caught in adultery. Jesus, what you think ought to be done with her? This woman was caught in the very act. Now the problem was this. There are many problems with this, but one of them was if the woman was caught in the very act, adultery is when a man has relations with another man's wife. That's the biblical definition. I know we expound it to extramarital affairs, but that's the biblical definition. When a man has relations with another man's wife. So she was caught in the very act. Where is he? Because he's just as guilty. Where's the dude? Jesus realized this was a setup. here to save not to judge now it doesn't mean that God doesn't judge we always talk about don't judge me don't judge me I'm about to tell you something very private don't judge will you judge me don't judge me I'm not about trying to figure out how wrong people are and I surely can't figure out their motives as to why they did things but Officer, don't judge me. I know the light was red. I know it was red, but I, don't judge me now. I had to get someplace, and I was in a hurry. I know the light was red, but that's immaterial to my, my intent. My heart was to get to the destination. I was going to church. So don't judge me. <laughs> Ma'am, here's your ticket. <laughs> Take it up with the judge. We, we have to do some judgment or else our society goes into anarchy. We have to be able to say, dude, what you did was wrong. Now, I love you dearly, but you're going to have to repent if you don't want to continue to get the consequences for your misdeeds. You're going to have to repent. I'm not talking about eternal consequences. I'm talking about natural. Simply because you're going to heaven don't mean you won't go to jail. <laughs> Doesn't mean your wife won't divorce you. You got to judge something. But what Jesus was trying to figure out all the time, because everybody was doing wrong, running the tape through his brain, save, save, save. As he wrote in the dirt, we don't know exactly what he wrote in John. 
it says, he, the next words were, he who is without, and, and the Greek says it this way, your Bible says, he who is without sin casts the first stone, which gives the impression that unless you are perfect, you can't ever call anybody wrong, which is not what the Bible is trying to say. What the original Greek means is, is this, he who is without this sin casts the first stone. In other words, you who don't have any part in what's happening here, go ahead and throw the stone. And it says they all left from the oldest to the youngest because they all knew they had a part in this. Now, once they leave, Jesus looks at the woman and says, uh, woman, where are your accusers? Because in the law, you could only be judged by the people who knew what you did. They had to be eyewitnesses. They had to be witnesses. And so they had to be the ones that cast the first stone. If you weren't an eyewitness, you couldn't cast it. All the people who were witnesses, bye-bye. Jesus says, woman, who is there left to accuse you? She said, none, sir. And then Jesus mixes mercy and truth. Judgment is salvation. He says, listen to me, girl. Stop it. Sin no more. Go your way. I can't judge you either because I wasn't an eyewitness. Not because you didn't do it right. Not because you didn't do it right. Yeah. I can't judge you. But, but stop because what you're doing is wrong. He saved her life while bringing truth. He had to weave in salvation in the midst of proper adjudication. He came to save the world, not to judge it. And every bit as I close... His last days. Is it true you are the king of the Jews? Pilate says. It is as you say. Then why don't you fix this? I see. I want to wash my hands of this. I don't need. I see nothing that you've done wrong. Silent was Jesus. Because he realized if he tried to defend himself. He would rob us of our opportunity for life. So he was thinking about you the entire time. Thinking about his purpose and obedience to God, knowing that he was to be the sacrifice. He was sent to save. And so he was tunnel visioned about salvation. Whatever it took to save the most, that's what he was going to do even if it meant sacrificing his life. He had a mission from the Father, and the Father loved the world so much that he sent his Son to do it. I beg you, understand God more today. Know how much he cares. And as a result of knowing how much he cares, become a really good kid. Let, let heaven... You know how, how you send your children, mine are old, send your children to school or daycare and somebody who's in charge of daycare or school will say, you have a really good child. He's just a pleasure to be around. What's it make you feel like, parents? 
Thank you, Lord. I hope people say that about you with respect to God. Dad, you got a really good bunch of kids over there at Grace Covenant. A really good bunch of kids. I don't want any of us to spend more time in the principal's office than we do in the classroom. So I beg you, since God loved you so much, love him back right. Father in heaven, I'm grateful for your goodness and kindness. I'm asking that you would help us as a people to serve you well.